Chapter Nine, Part One of Women of the French Revolution by Winifred Stevens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nine, Women and Religion, Part One. Quote, La femme est bien plus qu'un pontife; elle est symbole et religion. Michelet in religion as in every other department of life the revolution was a series of experiments at the outset the constituent assembly arrogated to itself the power of determining the national religion and other assemblies followed its example hence for twelve years from seventeen eighty nine to eighteen hundred one we see the french established religion describing a complete circle it began with the orthodox church of rome as it had been constituted in fifteen sixteen by the concordat between king francis i and pope leo x it passed through the national church as organized by the constituent assembly in august seventeen eighty nine the worship of reason instituted by the convention in november seventeen ninety three and the worship of the supreme being inaugurated by robespierre in may seventeen ninety four it returned to the national christian church as restored by the directory in seventeen ninety six and it finally came back to the church of rome as established by the concordat between napoleon and pope pius the seventh in eighteen hundred one when the men of the revolution required women to follow them in this feverish canter through successive phases of religious experience from ultramontanism to irrationism from irration christianity to atheism from atheism to theism and back to christianity again they found some of them lagging behind in the race many looked back like lot's wife to the country of ultramontane orthodoxy to the old faith and the old ritual they fainted and faltered in this giddy spiritual whirl not a few of them clung to the old faith some practised the ancient rites in secret while outwardly conforming to the new many refused to recognize the priests who having taken the oath to the constitution were installed by the government in the places of those who had refused it in one parish the constitutional priest on his arrival was met by a shower of stones from sixty women who pursued him to his presbytery danton's first wife gabrielle charpentier in spite of her husband's scepticism openly remained a devout catholic until her death in february seventeen ninety three danton who adored her respected her faith and when she went to mass even accompanied her to the church door the wife of the atheist hebert was an ex-nun who though she had availed herself of the convention's law enabling ex-nuns and priests to marry continued in other respects to practise her religion many women though willing to be vicaresses of bray found it difficult to relinquish the habit of crossing themselves one newspaper recommended that those who could not cure themselves of this superstitious practice might at least render it innocuous by mumbling as they made the sign instead of the traditional phrase in the name of the father son and holy ghost the words in the name of my country liberty and equality in certain towns the authorities reproached revolutionary women with attending church more frequently than their club meetings in the very clubs themselves women members were known to have demanded the state's return to orthodoxy but at the same time other women were changing their religious opinions with startling rapidity while at evreux in seventeen ninety one women and men too inaugurated the celebration of the fourteenth of july by a solemn mass two years later the same women were commemorating the republican anniversary by making a public bonfire of priests vestments missals croziers and other bondieuseries as they would have put it the last fuel thrown on the fire was a statue of st louis 
the women who most readily approved of these religious changes were those who like charlotte corday madame roland madame de stal and madame julien had drunk deep of eighteenth-century philosophy even before the revolution was it to a juring or a non-juring priest that you confessed at caen the president of the revolutionary tribunal asked charlotte corday neither to one nor the other she replied i had no confessor though madame roland as a child had intended to be a nun in early girlhood her faith had been undermined by those very works of bossuet that had been given her to strengthen it however favourable they were to the cause they were intended to defend she writes they enlightened me as to the attacks made upon that cause and taught me to call my belief in question that was the first step many others were to follow before i arrived at the scepticism that was to be my final stage after i had passed through jansenism cartesianism stoicism and deism what a long road to terminate in the patriotism which has brought me to these bonds elsewhere she writes of the religious ecstasy of her adolescence and of the philosophy of later years this philosophy seemed as if it would forever preserve her from that tempest of passion which now in middle age threatened to overwhelm her though she struggled against it with all the vigour of an athlete madame de stal was brought up by parents of protestant origin on the protestant principle of free inquiry le libre examen as opposed to the catholic principle of authority this critical spirit was among the many features of english mentality that she most admired it was one of those sources of perfect ability she wrote which had existed in england for more than a century but as in the case of most protestants there were limits to the scope of madame de stal's free inquiry one principle she never questioned was the moral government of the universe all her life long she was an ardent deist and shortly before her death in eighteen eighteen she followed the tendency of the time and reverted to something like orthodox christianity that religious ideas contribute to the happiness of mankind had always been an article of her faith and for that reason as she expressed it she had hesitated to deprive herself of them madame de stal devotes one chapter of her considerations on the french revolution to a discussion of the ecclesiastical policy of the constituent assembly she thoroughly approves of the confiscation of church property but she as thoroughly disapproves of the creation of a constitutional church a great fault which i think the constituent assembly might easily have avoided she wrote was the fatal invention of a constitutional clergy to exact from priests an oath forbidden by their conscience and when they refused to persecute them by depriving them of their pension and later by deportation was to degrade those who took the oath because of the loaves and fishes that went with it to act thus she continues was to substitute political for religious intolerance moreover this measure resulted in alienating from rome the clergy who enrolled themselves behind the banner of the revolution such priests were no good at all catholics would have nothing to do with them philosophers did not need any priests the juring clergy were merely a kind of militia discredited in advance who could do nothing but harm to the government they were supposed to support madame julien a devout disciple of jean jacques had subscribed to his savoyard vicar's creed long before the revolution her letters to her son in england abound with maxims culled from her master's works one thing is certain she writes that we are born good and rational the scandal of the human race is that a vicious minority attracts more attention than a virtuous majority i don't want to be a silly old mother boring you with ethical commonplaces 
i am addressing a friend whom nature has formed within me of the most precious elements of my being sensibility and love of virtue with that i have nothing to prescribe and everything to hope madame julien had accepted rousseau's philosophy and become a worshipper of the supreme being before robespierre established that cult as the national religion references to l'être suprême abound in madame julien's pages every day she prays to the supreme being to keep her son in happiness and virtue for the two are inseparable she says in april seventeen ninety two she writes that the wrath of the supreme being must have been aroused by the insolence of the aristocrats a few weeks later she gives an interesting account of a sermon she heard preached at st eustache by a priest who had taken the oath to the government i went with mademoiselle c she writes to the sermon at st eustache never no never was the pulpit of truth more worthily occupied the preacher's discourse sparkling with eloquence was on the best way to prevent civil war and to conquer our foreign enemies holding the gospels in one hand and the constitution in the other with all the fire of genius he preached liberty equality and fraternity the pictures he painted of the perversity of tyrants and courts of the degradation and misery of the people were so strikingly true that never since the beginning of the revolution have i read anything so fine and so convincing sadly pathetic was the irony of the contrast he drew with consummate art between all this and a citizen king who devoutly faithful to his oath would walk firmly in the career of virtue rising with the nation to the highest pinnacle of glory there is nothing so grand in the greatest oratorical triumphs of Fléchier and bourdaloue just when in his sublimest invocation he was calling down the thunder of divine justice on the heads of the guilty a real clap of thunder resounded throughout the vaults of the church roman superstition would have interpreted this incident as signifying that jupiter was favourable as for us we marvelled in silence at this chance coincidence that had occurred at so appropriate a moment and in our hearts we supplicated the divinity to manifest his justice and his power in a manner equally pronounced and terrible the congregation was so delighted with the words of this worthy minister of the supreme being that their applause continued long and resounded on every hand one day in the summer of seventeen ninety two on entering the church of st germain l'auxerrois madame julien finds in the nave a superb stone tablet on which was engraved the declaration of the rights of man the sight of it she says redoubled her devotion and she offered up an ardent prayer the revolution's protean changes of dogma and ecclesiastical organization were accompanied by other changes in customs festivals the names of days and months of streets and families which closely affected the daily life of the people the convention by various decrees favored the marriage of priests and of ex-nuns prints of the time represent ecclesiastics of both sexes hastening in multitudes to avail themselves of this new liberty more than two thousand priests are said to have married the first bishop to take to himself a wife was thomas lindet bishop of the Eure department he married in november seventeen ninety two on the following twenty third of september pontard bishop of dordogne presented his wife to the convention taking her on to the platform he described her as poor in fortune but rich in virtues of the class of sans-culottes in which reside frankness and amiable simplicity Cambon, president of the assembly greeted husband and wife with la collade fraternelle everywhere the revolutionary spirit thrust itself into ecclesiastical affairs including baptisms weddings and burials 
a drummer of the faubourg st antoine had his baby daughter christened at his paris church the church of st marguerite by the famous constitutional bishop fauchet whom we have already met as l'abbé fauchet of the social circle and the bouche de fer newspaper pition national pique were the topical names bestowed on this unhappy infant never would mademoiselle p n p be able to conceal her age as some women are said to do for a pition national pique could only have been born in the year seventeen ninety two when pition was mayor of paris and in the summer of that year when the mayor at the height of a popularity he was soon to lose was introducing the proletariat armed with pikes into the hitherto middle-class national guard the metallic element in the baby's name received visible expression after the christening when women of the faubourg armed with swords formed them into an arch of metal over the head of the newly baptized infant while loud cries of long live the nation resounded throughout the church but by that time certain leaders of the revolution were ceasing to have their children baptized at all camille desmoulins set the example for this reason and also because it affords many striking illustrations of the emotional and religious side of the revolution the romantic story of camille and lucille desmoulins belongs to this chapter in december seventeen ninety at saint sulpice and according to the rites of the catholic church camille had married the pretty bewitching lucille du plessis but when in the next year their son horace was born his father took him to the mairie to be registered instead of to the church to be christened poor little horace desmoulins of whom madame guillotine was soon to make an orphan was the first parisian child to have his name inscribed on the newly established civic register which was to replace the parish registers the father of horace could not let slip this opportunity of preaching the gospel according to the revolution hence after his son's name camille wrote in the register the following proposal seeing that liberty of worship has been decreed by the constitution and that by a decree of the legislative assembly the civic status of citizens may be declared otherwise than by religious ceremonies there ought to be raised in every municipality an altar on which the father assisted by two witnesses shall offer his children to la patrie then camille goes on to justify his own action in dispensing with a religious ceremony it is in order that when he grows up his son may not reproach his father with having associated him by oath with religious opinions which could not possibly have been his and with having on his entrance into the world forced him to distinguish between the nine hundred and odd religions which divide mankind at a time when he the infant was not even capable of distinguishing his own mother at length the mother is mentioned one had wondered when she was coming in but camille's ignoring of her hitherto may be excused by the fact that these dedicatory or registration ceremonies took place so soon after birth that the mother was never able to be present lucille desmoulins was far too charming a person to be ignored either by her husband or his friends l'éternelle rieuse some one had called her but in those sad days tears were never far behind laughter and so it was with lucille she was like an april day all showers and sunshine among the charming and heroic ladies of that time michelet admires most madame desmoulins and madame de condorcet men of future ages he prophesies will regret not having known them even the de goncourts who failed to see any attractiveness in revolutionary women made an exception for lucile pauvre grisette they called her égarée et perdue en cette époque sanglante figure petite mais amiable qui sourit pleure et meurt the term grisette is misleading 
lucile belonged to an honest family of la petite bourgeoisie and brought her husband a certain fortune the desmoulins love story is an idol camille the journalist the hero of the palais royal fell in love with lucile and her no less beautiful mother when he saw them walking one day in the luxembourg gardens he obtained an introduction to them was invited to their flat in the rue de tournon and to their country-house at bourg la reine during these visits camille soon discovered that it was lucile who had conquered his heart but he was then only a poor journalist and m duplessis would not hear of him as a husband for his daughter the lovers waited for some years camille had influential friends robespierre had been his schoolfellow his ability as a journalist attracted the marquis de sillery and the duc d'orleans himself they interceded for him with duplessis before such powerful pleading even the obduracy of lucile's father gave way and on the twenty ninth of december seventeen ninety she was married to camille the duc d'orleans furnished their flat in la rue de l'odéon and the witnesses of the marriage were five of the most prominent politicians of the day pitillon brissot mercier sillery and robespierre lucile's tea-parties in the rue de l'odéon soon became the centre of all that was lively gay and witty on the left bank the clever mademoiselle de keralio helped the pretty young hostess at the tea-table the dantons were frequent guests le duc d'orleans was sometimes present and for a while all seemed sunshine and laughter but baby horace was only a few months old when the horrors of the revolution began to cast a shadow over this charming home the evening of the ninth of august seventeen ninety two before the second attack on the tuileries lucile spent at the dantons danton was very resolute wrote lucile afterwards i laughed like a madwoman they were afraid the affair the attack on the tuileries of the tenth would not come off how can you laugh like that said madame danton alas said i it only means i shall shed many tears before the evening is over the night was fine we went out there were a great many people in the streets a group of sans-culottes went by crying long live the nation then soldiers on horseback a shiver came over me and i said to madame danton let us go in she laughed at my timidity then as i continued to be nervous she also became afraid i said to her mother you will hear the tocsin sounding before long at the house people were trooping in camille my dear camille came in with a gun my god i ran into the alcove and hid my face in my hands and began to cry still ashamed of appearing so weak i would not openly tell camille how i hoped he would keep out of it all but i waited for an opportunity to confide my fears to him without being heard he tried to reassure me by saying he would keep with danton i heard afterwards that he had run great risks i hid in the unlighted salon in order to be away from the preparations our patriots set out when towards midnight the tocsin sounded from the tower of the cordelier church lucile knelt at the window hid her face in her handkerchief and listened from time to time people came in bringing good news or bad at one o'clock camille returned he fell asleep on my shoulder writes his wife madame danton seemed to expect to hear of her husband's death she listened grew pale and then fainted oh my poor camille cries lucile at the close of her narrative what will become of us my god if there be a god save the men who are worthy of thee we long to be free 
but how terrible is the cost many a time throughout the months of terror that remained to her did lucile cry to the god whose existence she doubted if thou does exist she prays receive the offering of a heart that loves thee enlighten my soul i hate the world is that wrong why dost thou allow it to be so wicked o oh, my god when can i gazing upon thy glory prostrate myself at thy feet and bathe them with my tears i adore thee without understanding thee i pray to thee without knowing thee thou art in my heart i feel it yet i divine thee not thou art the secret of nature this happiness that we seek where can we find it no happiness is not to be found in this world in vain do we pursue it happiness is but an empty dream in these tempestuous days the emotions of trust and despair of gaiety and anguish succeeded one another rapidly in lucile's simple childlike breast when towards the end of seventeen ninety three camille had dared to oppose his former schoolfellow robespierre in his thirst for blood and to propose the institution of a committee of clemency his wife courageously supported him at lunch one day a friend tried to dissuade camille from pursuing his perilous course lucile rose went round to her husband kissed him and said let him alone let him fulfil his mission he will save france and any one who disagrees with me shall not have any of my chocolate camille was arrested at the same time as his friend danton and imprisoned in the luxembourg then lucile joined the throng of women children and old men who waited daily hour after hour on the broad walk leading to the prison hoping for a sight of some beloved face through the grated windows the language of flowers much studied at that time was used by these faithful watchers one would hold up a posy of pansies or some other flower the special significance of which would have been communicated to the prisoner by a bribed warder in this way the captives learned news of the outside world thus was a woman prisoner told that her husband was dead by a friend outside in the park holding up a bunch of scabias symbol of widowhood camille's cell looked on the garden where as he wrote to lucile i spent eight years of my life following you there is one peep over the luxembourg that brings back to my memory a host of recollections of our love i am in solitary confinement but never in thought and imagination have i been nearer to you to your mother and to our little horace i only write you this first little note to ask for the most necessary things but i shall spend all my time in prison writing to you camille fulfilled his promise and the letters that followed are all as full as the first of passionate love for his wife and child but camille's imprisonment was short arrested on the night of the thirtieth to thirty-first of march seventeen ninety four he was executed on the fifth of april having first been removed to la conciergerie five days later his wife followed him to the scaffold she had been arrested on the ill-founded charge of plotting to deliver her husband and other captives from prison camille the impulsive effervescent journalist whose nervous temperament betrayed itself by a stammering in his speech which he could never overcome this excitable camille completely lost control of himself on the way to the guillotine he struggled to loosen his bonds he hurled down curses on the convention and its dictator robespierre until danton who was with him in the tumbrel adjured him to be calm and to ignore the vile rabble said ville canaille 
lucille had seemed as excitable as her husband as long as they were together but once he was dead her effervescence subsided at her trial she appeared indifferent to all that was going on around her la femme camille said an eye-witness overwhelmed doubtless by the atrocity of her judges did not raise her eyes did not betray either hope or fear but meekly awaited her sentence i venture to question the cause which this eye-witness assigned for lucile's calmness he may not have possessed that knowledge of her previous life and character with which abundant documents have equipped the judgment of posterity we now see her to have been not only l'éternelle rieuse but l'éternelle amoureuse she was one of the few frenchwomen in whose heart the passion of love beat more powerfully than that of maternal affection their little horace both these lovers camille and lucile were content to leave to his grandmother camille refers to him frequently in the letters he wrote to his wife from prison but after the paroxysms of that last fatal ride his final word was of lucile my wife my beloved i shall never see you again but camille's ordeal had been infinitely harder than lucile's he had been called upon to leave her behind when lucile died camille having gone life had for her been shorn of all attractiveness and meaning camille in his last letter to her from prison had tried to inspire her with a consolation which can hardly have been his in face of his last words on the scaffold yet in his desire to comfort lucile he had written to her i believe in god and in a future life those words treasured in lucile's heart rendered her indifferent to all earthly affairs caused her to look to mere guillotine as the deliverer inspired the last little note she wrote to her mother good night dear mamma i shed a tear it is for you i shall fall asleep in the calm of innocence on her way to the scaffold she was perfectly serene comme elle est belle exclaimed the crowds who followed her on her last journey there was one member of the convention to whom lucile and her mother had looked to save camille that was robespierre as we have seen he and camille had been schoolfellows before her marriage to camille robespierre is said to have been in love with lucile their engagement had been talked of after camille's arrest lucile had written entreating robespierre to save her husband whether the letter ever reached the sea-green monster those who have tried to whitewash him suggest a doubt it is certainly doubtful whether robespierre received the following letter written by madame du plessis asking him to save her daughter citizen robespierre is it not enough to have assassinated your best friend do you now thirst after his wife's blood your monster of a fouquier tinville has just signed the order for her to be taken to the scaffold in two hours she will have ceased to exist robespierre if you are not a tiger in human form if camille's blood has not intoxicated you so as to deprive you of your reason if you remember the evenings spent in our home the caresses you lavished upon little horace when you held him on your knee if you remember that you were to have been my son-in-law spare an innocent victim but if yours is the lion's fury then come and take us also adele and horace come and tear us to pieces with hands still stained with camille's blood come come let one grave bury us all whether robespierre ever received that letter or not was all one for there was nothing in the purely human sentiments it expressed to appeal to the heart if he had one or to the intelligence of this superman his was the cold unflinching cruelty of the idealist 
no personal considerations that interfered with the pursuance of his convictions were ever allowed to weigh with him for a single moment however he had believed he could save france but in the spring of seventeen ninety four doubt began to assail him his dictatorship had for some months been threatened this opposition came from two directions from the moderate party led by danton and desmoulins and from the ultra-terrorists led by hébert and chaumette the two latter had been guillotined on the twenty fourth of march hébert's widow the ex-nun suffered the death penalty at the same time as lucille not even madame hébert's catholicism saved her though one might have thought it would have placated robespierre he could certainly not have included her in the accusation he was bringing against her husband and his followers of going too far in the dechristianization of france End of chapter nine part one